everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and no Vlad this week, as you well as you'll soon hear if you're listening on the podcast form. Uh, we made it to episode 74, and we are talking about how to successfully bring disruptive technology to manufacturing. And our very special guest this week, all the way from Europe, is Heider Schneider. Uh, Heider, can you say hi to everyone? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thanks, uh, Dave and Karen, for having me here. Absolutely. Th thank you for being here. Um, and uh, we'd love to know a little bit more about you. Would you mind giving the guests a bit of your background and, and what you have done, either right or wrong, to, to bring you here talking to us today? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's a big ask, man. Um, I can probably start like in a chronological uh, manner. So basically, my background is in mechanical engineering. Um, that's what I studied. Um, I then went into a PhD where I looked into turbulence simulation. Um, so that was the first time I was really exposed to um, yeah disruptive technology because at that time we were using supercomputers to um, to predict like how the flow in gas turbines would affect the heat transfer. And um, we were thinking about, okay, how could we improve the efficiency of gas turbines, right? Which is a huge topic um, nowadays, both for, um, for for transportation, like in airplanes, but also for energy generation in, um, in gas turbines, um, in, in power uh, plants, yeah? So that's what I, um, so there I spent a couple of years. Um, I then went into the chemical industry where I also started in the R&D department. And from there on, I was um, more and more exposed to, um, to, to technology that would like build upon what I, what I brought from, from uh, my PhD, right? So I started with supercomputing. That was a lot of like predictive modeling. And afterwards I switched to, um, to more data-driven modeling in uh, machine learning. And um, from there on, I um, got a leadership position, um, went into innovation. Um, I was responsible for the um, for the manufacturing and artificial intelligence program at BISF. And currently, I lead a team that is um, working in the same field. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, yeah, so can you tell us, because I know we want to talk a little bit more about innovation, but when, when you look at innovation in manufacturing, uh, is there specific areas that you would define looking for innovation or maybe how would you guys define innovation uh, in manufacturing in general? That's a good question, actually. Um, I would probably say that innovation is always like tied to some specific goal that you want to achieve, like in the most general sense, right? I mean, you don't innovate just for fun. You want to like improve your bottom line. You want to like improve your operations. So there are a lot of like targets that you can hit in manufacturing. And it, I think it depends a lot on the industry that, uh, that you are in and also on the use case, right? As, Absolutely. A, as a very general answer, right? I mean, um, we have to go into more details. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so I have a question around that. So you spent a lot of time at BSF in the innovation department leading that. Um, and I guess you probably had our colleagues in other companies also working on innovation and things like that, or you had, you went to conferences and discussed with other people in the same position. What would you say is the most common mistakes industrial companies make when approaching um, these more advanced innovation programs, right? Like not simply not traditional analytics or something like that, but a bit more something that's, that is a bit out of their traditional expertise, like mm -hmm. machine learning, like AI. Mm -hmm. um, what would be those mistakes that, that usually you see um, happen over and over again? I mean, before I would talk about mistakes, I think it would make sense to talk about what companies do right, because I think a lot of companies do a lot of things quite right, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there is... Um, there's a general agreement that um, that innovative technology is can can help companies to improve on on their goals, whatever these goals are, right? Bottom line savings, like better operations, more secure operations, whatever it may be, right? And um, I think there's a huge ecosystem out there that is looking into topics like AI, into five G, into robotics, into blockchain. I mean. That hype now fades a bit out, but in principle, right? It's 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 still an advanced technology, mm -hmm. um, and many and and the good thing is that companies realize nowadays that they need to innovate in order to um, to, to set them up for success for the future, right? I think that's super important. Um, 
now talking about how you execute that, I mean, um, there are many different ways how we can execute um, innovation programs, right? So I've been talking to people from similar industries. I've been talking to people from other industries. I've been talking to people from consulting companies that are either, you know, like the big three or the big five ones, but there are also some that are really specialized on innovation and everyone takes a bit a different approach to be honest. Right. So some companies believe, Hey, um, we take maybe something out there and adapt it to our ecosystem or our environment, because we believe that is maybe a bit special, right? That could be one approach. There are others that say, um, well, we just reinvent the wheel, for example. I think that's also existing. Um, and then there's, I would say, another like category um, of companies that say, um, well, we don't know anything about that. We simply get help from the outside and just follow a sort of recipe, right? So that would be the three ways how, how companies would approach that. And depending on the approach that you take, there are like opportunities but there are also like risks that you that you that you can face right mm-hmm. um when i come back to your original question now what what companies like do as a mistake i think from the conversations i had um i believe it's a lot about like um like really honing in on the goals that you want to achieve and really like you know, nail it down. Like, you know, how do you really know that you succeed in innovation? Because, um, I mean, you can run the programs, you can like put in the invests and so on. You can keep people busy. But the question is like, how, how do you know that it affects you? Right. How do you know whether it moves the needle? And I think this is really where, where I think the, the average would, would be separated from the really great companies because the great companies, they actually know exactly like how each like measure they take, how each like program will affect their their, their results basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's um that's interesting. I, I mean it's 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 an, it's an interesting take on um how to handle how to handle innovation. Would would you talking about goal based and things like that? But I'm a bit curious to know. In um so innovation is not always predictable. Um so it's uh, sometimes um. Yeah. And, and you can see, right? Like in in, in startups, you have uh, what's the traditional model is we're gonna bet on a hundred, and then one or two might work like really well, and some of them will yeah. be okay. And so that's that's a bit I feel like, at least in my experience when working with manufacturers, I found that that to be a bit counterintuitive uh, to the very ROI, uh, very like, I mean, actually goal oriented manuf- like manufacturing mindset. Yeah. Um, so. I was I was I was curious about what do you think how how do company how companies can balance this uncertainty that comes that inherent mm-hmm. to innovation with the internal need of like really getting that ROI yeah. and really measuring everything how do you balance mm-hmm. that because yeah, that's that's, that's yeah. something not I mean I would say in like at least tech companies bigger tech companies something like that they're much more liberal liberal with that right like they just try mm-hmm. projects and if it doesn't work they kill they go to the next one with no remorse. But I feel like in manufacturing, that was, that's a bit uh, like fraud upon and people like really want to plan and ensure that something gets, uh, you know, as you say, like moved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, and I think it's worthwhile to look a bit deeper into it because I was talking about like, you know, setting sort of the goals, right? But we didn't talk about like how these goals would look like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people presume and I think this is the rather traditional approach. They are like in this ROI mode, right? They are like, okay, I invest like today X amount and mm-hmm. tomorrow I get Y amount out of it sort of, right? And I think here's also how really the, the, the grades that set themselves apart from, from the rest is um, basically they understand that first of all, it's a long-term activity. I think that's, that's for sure. Um, second thing is um, you can't get an ROI out of it like in a short uh, on the short term so if you want to do that then you're in the wrong place um and i think the third aspect is that you have to as exactly as you say you have to look at it like in a portfolio fashion right you have um you must understand that you will fail and you must be willing to fail and you must like have also this culture of that failure is part of the progress actually right 
So okay. your example, let's say you, you, you have your portfolio, right? And if you're really good, I think you can maybe have one success out of 10, right? Mm -hmm. If you're really good, yeah. If you execute bad, it will be probably less, right? And this, this less can be then the difference between whether your program will be successful or not. Mm -hmm. Because the, the really large companies, um, when they when they go into these kind of activities, they basically look into large markets, right? So usually, I mean, in startups, it's usually they say, okay, it's a, it's a billion maybe worth of a market, right? And then you can basically do the math and say, okay, if I'm if I have this success rate at this rate of investment, you can just do the math and then you know that you will get your ROI. But it's a long term thing, right? And you must stick to it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. C can I ask? So when we talk about looking at, at the metrics, right? So when you were to look at bringing in and working with innovative technologies, Hyder, um, is it we're looking at like the key, the KPIs, the key performance indicators for the organization and trying to find solutions that slot into those are you looking at more of a blue blue ocean opportunity of saying, hey, I think that this could be valuable at some point. Let's put specific metrics around what a success of this project would look like. How, how would you go in and, and look at, uh, at these type of offerings? So I think there's probably no blueprint how you want to do that. Um, I think depending on where you are in your innovation journey and also like you know, the size of the company and your funding that you have available, you have different opportunities, how you could, how you could go into this direction. Um, I think it doesn't make sense for most of the companies to go too deep into fields that, um, that are outside of their own domain. Right. I think this mm -hmm. is one of the common, I would say patterns that, that, that are not really successful. Like say you're, I don't know, a manufacturing company, and you want to go too far into like deep tech, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So there are very few cases where you have like, you know, the people, the the, the budget, you know, the, the mm -hmm. management report and all that you, you need in order to be successful. So I think it makes sense to, to, to build that around your specific needs that you, that you have. Um, and you must also think about, okay, how do you generate the value? I mean, how, what, how does success look for you as a company, right? And as I said earlier, it is probably different for, for every company, but you have to be really clear about it, right? I think it's also okay to start with something and to say, okay, this is our first guess. And then along the way, mm -hmm. we, we, we want to like, you know, improve on that because, um, because that needs also some, some time until it's really, you know, in, in the process. But, um, but that's how I would see it. Absolutely. I think that that's a good point. And, and I think you guys raised a good player that I'd just like to kind of reiterate, depending upon the size of the organization, depends upon the amount of almost darts you can throw, right? So it, it, on a smaller medium organization, you probably have one chance to get, or maybe two chances to get whatever this initiative is correctly, right? But if you're a larger organization, you might have half a dozen chances and the half a dozen chances may not know that everyone else is trying to, to reach this end goal. So I once did work with a, a Fortune 50 company, right? And just within kind of the scope that I was doing, it became readily apparent that we were one of four or five different initiatives. And the end goal was all basically the same. And there, there was one kind of homegrown technology that they had been building. And then the group that I was coming in and working with, and then uh, this was probably four or five years ago, right? So, so th there was a Fortune 50 company name, Initiative 2020, and that was the goal of where they wanted to be by 2020, right? So, so there were a number of different kind of competing, uh, competing projects as well. Uh, so I, I would definitely agree, depending upon the, the size of the company, definitely correlates to the number of opportunities you have to get it right. And the, the larger the organization, the, the further out in disruptive technologies uh, they're going to look at. The smaller the organization, the probably less likely they're willing to look at unproven uh, unproven technologies that, that aren't very much kind of within the core value of what they have or a specific problem that they're trying to, uh, to solve at mm -hmm. the moment. Um, you mentioned a little bit of artificial intelligence. I, we have talked about artificial intelligence uh, 
to, to some fair extent on the show, right? There, there are people who are very bullish that artificial intelligence is going to come and save us in, in the next six months. There are other people who think it's going to take a, a lot longer period of time. Can we get kind of your, your overall thoughts on artificial intelligence in manufacturing and what those solutions look like, please? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, I think also when it comes to innovation, right, um, it also is worthwhile to, to reflect on innovation means different things for different companies, mm -hmm. right? And depending on where you are in your stage, I mean, innovation could be that you partner with, I don't know, a little like software development company or so, right? And that could be like already like a big deal. Or you can like do the full-fledged program and I don't know, uh, run a run an incubator in your company and then you know try to 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 build a company. So so, so there's already like a huge spectrum. Um, and your question was now about AI, basically, right? I mean, there it's the same thing, right? I mean, how do you define AI? And I think I define it quite loosely, to be honest. So for me, a linear regression is already like AI sort of, right? Yeah. Um, because I think a lot about applications, right? Um, and that's also something that people have to understand. I mean, if you go into these applications, people basically don't care about your algorithm or your you know, method or whatever you have. They have a problem. They want a solution, right? And yep. I think you just have to provide them with a solution, right? And as long as it has some modeling and, 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 and data-driven like approach in it, I'm, I'm totally fine with calling it AI, right? Even if, I mean, then there's a lot of debate. People say, oh, it's, it must be a neural network. It must be this and that. It must, you know, act autonomously. Sure, you can you can always, like, make it bigger. But um, I think if, if you define it that loosely, then I think AI is a no-brainer mm -hmm. to approach because it basically, um, if you also, like, define it a bit more deliberately, for me, it's something that helps you to make your decisions in a more data-driven manner right or in a more data informed manner and i think every company and everyone outside can benefit from being more data informed right i i would absolutely agree i think that everyone can can benefit from being more data informed i i would define ai a little bit more rigidly where you have to take the take the outcome of the algorithm or the the regression and just dump it back into the system of making decisions. That's, and I think that's we're, we're, cool. yeah. we're, yes, I, I would yeah. say that we're a little bit further away. I, at least I, I am scared of the concept of the, the machines taking over, right. Of, of them yeah. going and, and making decisions. Uh, we, we as humanity and because we as humanity turns us into programmers, like we are not the best at running our own machines and equipment. So I, I'm a little worried of, of us going and telling the machines what we think they need to do. And, uh, and then the machines doing those things and potentially causing causing issues. But but I would 100% agree. I think everyone who has come on to talk about data analytics would agree with we as a manufacturing community would do better with the, the access to more real-time data and then actually going and using that real-time data mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to make mm -hmm. decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, Karim, what, yeah. what are your thoughts? Maybe yeah, can so I can add one more thing? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you brought that up, right? I mean, um, I also like made more of this like basic sort of division of AI, right? And there are a lot of people, you know, who go like as far as, oh, there will be this autonomous, I don't know, manufacturing mm -hmm. plant and these like sets mm -hmm. of plants that probably will interact without a human in the loop, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a bit more skeptical about this because I think that was quite a hype that was going on. And I think a lot of the promises mm -hmm. were not probably like realized, uh, mainly because I think a lot of people, you know, just figured out that, okay, there are a lot of practical steps, like in theory, it's feasible, right? But there are a lot mm -hmm. of practical steps that you have to undertake in order to get there. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I also see it a bit more like right now as something where there's still a human in the loop. But there's no doubt that the future will, will will be without the human in the loop, and it's just a matter of time when that will, um, yeah, mm -hmm. be really absolutely. Yeah. So I, I have a funny story that one of our guests told um, about kind of autonomous factories, and and I I feel bad because I don't remember which guest told this, but but I'm going to retell it, and then I'm going to rack my brain after the show too uh, to figure out who who told it correctly, right? So they, they were working on a lights out factory, right, and 
uh, they had built this lights out factory and it was going really good. And then springtime came and without fail, like every night there, there would just be sensor issues. Right. And, and I think it was machine vision issues and the system would shut down completely. So they went through that. They looked at everything they went in, they walked around with the lights on. They're like, no, everything should be fine. Nothing makes sense. It ran correctly for, for three months without any human interference um, overnight. And so at some point it got bad enough that this gentleman had to go and sit there, right? So he's sitting there in front of the machines. And then at some point they just hear the sounds of like millions of bugs. And so all of these bugs came in from the outside into the inside because it was warmer inside and they were attracted to the little like IR sensors on the lights. And so they would go swarm the, the IR sensors on the lights. So I, I absolutely, uh, I absolutely agree. At some point, we'll get much closer to autonomous um, <laughs> until we've got the robots going and clearing the sensors off from bugs that have come in. I, I yeah. think we've got, uh, I think we got a little ways to go, but I mean, what, what was, I mean, that's a crazy edge case. Like, I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of things that we don't think about when trying to implement yep. these autonomous systems, right? It's like, how do you cover all of these edge cases? And in certain cases, the edge cases are much more costly than uh, than we anticipated. Um, I had I had so I listened to your point about AI and how we how we bring it in, and you know like these unrealized like promises. And so, in my experience, when we worked with industrial companies, right, like an electrical company that were looking at um, at uh, bringing some sort of advanced analytics, some sort of machine learning, and every conversation started like. Hey, did you guys do this before? And it was always a yes, a resounding yes. We tried this, we tried that. And so what I kept hearing is that they often, as you said, they go and try to partner with somebody because it's outside of their expertise. The challenge is that they go partner with somebody who has no industrial experience. And that's normal because most of like machine learning and AI studies are done in, um, in fields where data is abundant, right? Like, so we're talking about consumer, uh, finance, fintech and things like that. Yep. And so, I I heard uh, about a lot of I heard a lot about a lot of these cases where projects failed because people basically tried to transpose the same machine learning models or the same approach that they use for consumer recommendations to manufacturing uh, without really really thinking about it. And so I was wondering, what would you what would you recommend for or what, what would you advise like companies that are maybe they're already uh, working on some AI, some machine learning, they're looking to um, address the industrial manufacturing market or what would you advise them to basically, what should they think about it? How should they adapt their, their thinking? Should they bring somebody on their team that knows about uh, the industry? What have you seen work maybe on, in, mm -hmm. in, in, in those regards? I mean, there are also multiple approaches that you could take, right? Um, I think in general, as a company, you must be really like, you must understand like where the value is if you do something like this, right? So you must really understand, okay, if I invest something, I, I, I will get this return out of it. And for many, like, like now we're not talking about innovation, but more about like execution on like some, some specific topic that, uh, or issue that you have, right? There, most of the time you can calculate like a business case, right? Um, so that would be the first thing I would say, okay, be clear about what is the upside that you can that you can generate with this activity. The second thing is, and I think this is also no secret, like data science in general is successful if you have domain expertise, right? Um, so in, in real world applications, I think it's a lot about like um, bringing expert knowledge together with sort of your, your data science approach, right? So it's like how you, how you let these people like work very like um, intelligently together, right? Without like having silos and then, because that's, that's not working. So if you, if you can bring domain knowledge together with your data science approach, then I think you, you have a recipe that can work. Mm -hmm. If you just think, okay, this is like a service um, and I just like buy that or like, you know, throw something over the fence that could maybe also work in some cases, but that would be probably simpler cases. And um, most things are, are more complex, I think, in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a, we have uh, an interesting question. Uh, sorry, Dave. Um, just no, that's fine. Uh, from, from, from a comment. Um, 
we we talked about AI and machine learning. How do you deal like in in manufacturing? Let's say, how do you deal with 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 biased data in manufacturing? How do you how do you make sure that you get the right data uh, to train your models, to train you, to train your um, to train your machine learning models? Um, and I think that's particularly challenging to do in, in places like chemicals because um, complexity is just much bigger than uh, in discrete manufacturing, I guess. So any, any thoughts about that? I think it's applicable anywhere. Um, so it, it's not like specific in, in, in chemicals, to be honest. Um, I mean, first of all, I would try to understand like what bias data actually means exactly because as far as I understand bias, um, it comes from a probably a different context where, for example, you deal like in insurances, for example, right? Or for example, in healthcare, right? So you don't want that an, an AI will, um, yeah, will give a bias recommendation because of someone's like background, for example, right? So this is how I understand bias. Um, I think in manufacturing, you basically don't have that, right? Because, um, which doesn't mean you don't have maybe a biased system, but then this is something that is inherent in the system. And this is part of your job to figure out, okay, um, how can I, how can I like identify that? How can I deal with that? How can I remove that maybe? Right. So that would be for me, like part of, of, of your job that you have to accomplish anyways. Mm -hmm. I, I think I, I would agree uh, generally with, with Heider on the concept of biased data. I think that my understanding of, of AI is when we go and program these algorithms, it's the bias of the, the programmers of what they put in because of their own personal known or unknown bias that, that causes potential issues uh, with, with these programs. I would say that I've seen lots of systems that while I wouldn't call it biased data, I would call it bad data, right? So I, I've seen systems that while they, they collect the, the theoretically correct information, right? If, if a sensor or something were to fail, it may fail all the way to the top of the range or it may fail. And if we don't go through and clean the data and, put, and contextualize the data, then it could cause potential biases down the line when we're actually going to, to run it. So I've seen uh, companies that have like temperature sensors to measure outside air temp because that causes issues in, in a number of facilities, especially non-climate controlled areas. And I, I have seen companies that those sensors have failed for six months, right? And they either fail at the very top of range to like 100, or they fail at the very bottom of the range of zero. And if we don't go and look and basically just see that line all the way across the graph, that could certainly cause issues uh, when we're going in and, uh, and dealing with that. Uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, but if there's more comments as to what biased data, uh, means, if, if we want to go, if you want to go ahead and, uh, kind of respond to that, I'd love to kind of continue this conversation because biased data, believe it or not, it, it, uh, and the importance of that within AI is not a conversation that, uh, that we have specifically had on this show. I, I would like to go back to a previous comment that you had made, uh, Heider, with, with how companies, especially, not companies that don't have manufacturing experience can go work with uh, can go work with larger, uh, especially manufacturing companies. So I've worked with with a number of these companies, right? So um, either coming in as a consultant to help bring some of that uh, domain expertise, or working with these companies in order to kind of build up their solutions. And I would say, I guess in my experience, and my experience is probably very biased, right? But in my experience, I think it's very important to go bring someone who has domain expertise in because manufacturing as most people who listen to the show will know is kind of a strange thing in and of itself. And if you don't come in knowing what is generally expected within the industry, if you don't come in knowing that for instance, sometimes your, your data is just going to be bad or we're not going to have data or we might have data, but for whatever reason, our management and leadership go through the process of reading it on a piece of paper every morning, and then they go back to their offices to go try to solve their problem, and maybe we figure out the answer two weeks later. That that the, the concept of that to most people is I don't know maybe asinine, right? Like like it, it's it's crazy. Like no one would think that you would have the data and the power to do that, but you're not going to solve the problem. You're going to go away with your pieces of paper that you wrote on 
and maybe we'll solve the problem a couple of weeks later in a, in a follow-on meeting. So most of the successful groups that I've seen bring technology into manufacturing companies who don't have that industrial expertise need someone with that industri industrial expertise to, to at least help guide them um, to at least help guide them down the path. No, uh, very good. Let's let's take this moment to uh, to go thank our sponsors. Uh, so uh, again, we want to thank uh, Phoenix Contact uh, for for sponsoring uh, this month, uh, the, the month of August, and we want to talk about an exciting new course that Phoenix Contact and Solus PLC is actually doing. Right, so. Vlad's not here, so he can't hold up a PLC next. Well, Kareem, you, you fake hold up a PLC next because I don't <laughs> think you have one. And uh, and so uh, so so um, Solos PLC, SolosPLC.com, put together a PLC next course, and it covers on how to get started with the platform, how to create the program flows, how to implement ladder logic, structured text, and function block based on all of the IEC sixty one one thirty one standards as well as external communications. Uh, so right now, the course has PLC Next hardware configuration. It has PLC engineer, uh, the PLC programming uh, language software. It talks to PCUA communication and Modbus implementations. I know that we're talking about, well, I know that, that Vlad is talking about, and we can go ahead and commit him to this right now because he, uh, he has fled the continent, right? So I, I know that they're gonna work on MQTT, uh, last week when Zach was here, we talked about the SPLC 1000, uh, the extension module for the ProfiSafe controller, which may or may not be officially launched. And so uh, they're going to go put all of that out there. If you guys want to learn more about the PLC Next, uh, you guys can, of course, check out Phoenix Contact, contact any of your local distributors. To the best of my knowledge, they currently have some in stock on the stations themselves. I think the learning centers are, are still sold out as, as they have been for an extended period of time. And if you guys want to learn more about the course, please check out solusplc.com. Uh, again, thank you to Phoenix Contact for, for sponsoring this theme and the amazing support that they've given us and, and everyone in the community. Ah, sure. Perfect. Great, great. Uh, yes. Yes, I um, I wanted to go back a bit to because um, I I remember now um, an experience I had when working on one of these projects. So I saw one of the the companies that one of the companies I work with had a very interesting internal process to dealing to basically um, trying the innovation, but then to diffuse it logically throughout the throughout their you know hundreds of plants, um, and that was basically what they did is that. They categorize our different plants in levels of maturity, uh, in level of um, the plant team to uh, try out new technologies, to try out a bit more, um, I mean, some, some advanced innovations. And they would basically, what we did when we worked with them, they even we were, they were based in Europe, but one of their plants were based in, in the US and they redirected us to that plant to really work with the team in that plant to uh, to build a proof of concept. And it really showed that that team actually had a lot of experience working on this because they were very quick. They were very, uh, they, they were very engaged. They were, uh, you know, they provided us with very valuable feedback and the whole project moved much quicker than we anticipated based on our previous experience. So I was wondering, I wanted to ask you in your experience, how do you think is the best way for, um, especially larger organizations that have a lot, many plans, how can they best structure these these uh, these these programs to build the POC, gain gain uh, the buy-in from both the, the plan team, but also from management, and then um, like eventually bring the technology like uh, scale it across the entire organization? Yeah, I think you 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 mentioned a pretty interesting point um, that it depends a lot on the team that you're working with in the plant, right? So um, I think it definitely makes sense to look into like sort of like a ROI perspective, right? Where do you like reap some substantial reward for, for your activities, right? But then there are a lot of other influencing factors that will determine whether your activity will be successful or not. And one of those would be actually the team. So um, 
there are there are teams that are like super excited to work on like novel topics. They are super excited to work with um, with other teams on on solving their problem. Right? There is management in the same same spirit, right? There are a lot of like very forward looking managers that say, "Hey, I want to have that because this is so like exciting," or they want to like um, make that improvement with with a new technology. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, as humans, we are all sort of different, right? And there are also other kinds of like people. Other people are more like conservative, right? They are more like defensive. It depends also on their business, right? Some can afford to take some risk. Others, they cannot afford it at all, right? They must be like super conservative, no no margin for error. And um, it, it, as I said earlier, it depends a lot on your company and what you do. Um, but I think this individualized approach definitely makes sense and to to pick one or two teams where you also hope to you you have a higher uh, chance of success right because once you have that you have something that you can you can show you get a testimonial you get like an improvement right you can you can then um, use that as a as a means to then convince also other people that are naturally more reluctant. And um, I think the the worst thing that you can do probably is to try to make sort of this roll out approach where you say, oh, we have now this and we now roll it out if it's not made sure, right? So it's better to take a, a step-by-step approach because you as a team, you must also learn. Um, you also come in, you, you don't know it all, right? So um, you want to have like a good starting point and from there on you can then improve, learn, get the result, get the success and then move on to the next one, yeah? Mm-hmm. And, how, and I, as a manager, how would you, let's say if you're new coming into an organization or you just got that role, how would you go about identifying these teams, um, especially in you know in an organization when you have hundreds of plants? Well, that's not an easy task, right? <laughs> if you are like an outsider, I mean, I, f- from the inside, I think it's easier because you have a better feeling of like whom to work with, right? From the outside, you must basically build up that intelligence and try to understand, okay, um, like who's doing what, who's really uh, looking forward. Um, I think it's not that easy from the outside, but it can be done. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, guys, I, Karim, I know that you've done a number of these projects. Do you potentially have a success story that you can walk through and we can have Hyder give us some feedback on things that you guys either did correctly or maybe – uh, areas of improvement to talk about how we could potentially actually bring some of this disruptive technology to manufacturing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, in, in our projects, actually, what, I mean, the, the times that it worked well was a lot of what, uh, what, what Heider said. It was, it was basically really building a good relationship with the people, with like the, the innovation people, and then having frank conversations about uh, business outcomes that, about uh, who's in the w- and who's who's gonna who, who's gonna help us who's gonna stand in our way uh, and very early on right and then also as Hydra said really try to build that intelligence really like through these relations try to build that intelligence and really map um, who are the quote unquote early adopters who are gonna be who are gonna help you get there and I think the earlier you do that. Um, the more the more upfront you do that in the beginning, the better you can manage expectations. But for but to be f- fully transparent is also like that. None of the projects that I worked on ever went into full production, and that's mm-hmm. why I also wanted to have this conversation. It was interesting is that you, POCs are great, and you can do POCs and learn about all of this stuff. But getting things in production in manufacturing that are not like very straightforward and people know about already and stuff like that that are a bit mm-hmm. out there seems to be extremely hard and yeah. i i still didn't quite understood uh what would be a good approach to do that like uh, i mean of course you can take years and years to do that but as a startup you have limited time and limited resources so mm-hmm. the question is how do you do that or even should you be trying to do that maybe startups should just not go to big manufacturers in the beginning and go try to her adjacent industry and then come to manufacturing yeah. with already proven testimonials you know battle tested system i don't know what do you think Hyder? 
Hey, that's a good point. And um, I think Dave mentioned it earlier when he talked about like this domain experience sort of like aspect, you know, and at that point, I, I would probably try to differentiate, right, whether you are running a service or whether you are like running a product, right, because the approaches are very different. If you do a service, then basically that's most of the time a one-off sort of like activity, right? Or maybe you can scale that out to maybe similar problems, but, you know, it's not something that you automate um, very well. So um, I think it gets more interesting when you talk about product. And there, Karim, I, I, I see your point with the startups. Um, I think manufacturing is a domain, I mean, undoubtedly, right? I mean, you have running systems and these systems are directly sort of like responsible for your bottom line, right? So if these systems don't run, your bottom line will also not run and then you're in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. So I think naturally people are very reluctant on new things. And I think rightfully so, right? Because I mean, how do you know that this will really work? What, what, what you do? Why do you risk that, right? You have I mean, commitments that you that you have done usually um, manufacturing with marketing or sales and so on, and you can't risk that business, right? Just for some theoretical or hypothetical improvement. Now, how do startups approach this area? Um, and I think there it also makes sense to look into the size of the companies that startups work with, right? And also at the stage where the startup actually is, right? If you are a very early stage startup, um, most of the time, to be honest, they don't have found product market fit yet, right? So mm -hmm. probably it doesn't make sense, I mean, to, to approach large companies because that's most of the time, just a waste of time, right? The sales cycle is too complex, like getting to the buyers, getting to the decision makers, getting through all these approvals, getting to all the checks and balances that are there for good reasons, right? Most of the startups won't do it, yeah? So um, I think it makes sense, as Karim said, um, Look, I mean, try to figure out your product market fit with people that, you know, are maybe smaller, where you have probably more informal relationships, where you can maybe also get faster results, right? And the challenge is that, I mean, I get it, these larger corporations, they are, look more attractive for like, especially young startups, because once you like sign one of those, then, you know, you're pretty sure to get into the next financing round, right? Which... I mean, can be also a fallacy, right? Because if you don't sign them and you don't like get any result, then you're also out of the game. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would advise, like, if you're early, probably try to figure out product market fit, like in a friendly environment, like with a smaller company, try to get into that industry because a lot of people are also not from an industry. So they maybe know AI or ML, right? But they know anything about manufacturing. So, hey, do your homework, like spend maybe a couple of years in that domain, like, demonstrate that you can do something there and then I think success will automatically like come. And it's, it's, it's a good point, but in my experience, what it's, what is the other thing that is tricky? I mean, we're speaking purely about manufacturing, right? Is that only big companies have these innovation programs, these digital labs and stuff like that. So that's kind of why you pivot towards them. If you, if you want to go to a smaller manufacturing company, as we discussed before, they probably mm -hmm. don't have any of that. And like they are, they're still dealing with very basic stuff and they have no capacity to extract the data, give you the data if you're in machine learning or AI, like anything like that. So that's the kind of the conundrum here in manufacturing, at least, is that. I don't see it that way, yeah. to be honest. The, I mean, what you probably, or what I hear from what you say is that um, when we talk about innovation, I mean, these, these people, maybe startups, they think about innovation, right? They think about like the language they speak, right? Machine learning, deep learning, AI, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. But no one cares in the real world about your technology. I mean, these people have like problems, right? And you have to like solve the problem. And this is actually where you also find your product market fit. If you like are able to translate your technology into something that can solve a problem. And this is why I say as, as long as you are not able and, and this is maybe also where sometimes innovation programs are not that good um, because these sometimes also focus too much on technology per se and not so much on solving a problem. I think the, the, the best invest that you can do is always spend time with someone and solve their problem and learn from that and then think about how you can productize that. Mm -hmm. So you would advise Absolutely. almost to start like on a maybe like semi-service basis. Is, is, is that and like... 
because services are kind of easier yeah cheaper yeah, to buy I, like they're easier to buy internally i think they're easier to justify the budget for services and then you mentioned slowly and slowly like learn learn about their systems learn about their problems build their relationships and then productize is that kind of i mean that's that's a strategy that a lot of startups take and um I think people have mixed feelings about it in general, right? So yeah. there are pros and cons, right? The big pro is, mm -hmm. I mean, you get at least some some customer. <laughs> yeah. But the big con is, I mean, you work for the customer on a basically time and a material basis, right? Which means that the customer tells you what, what you should do, which um, doesn't help you if you want to build a product, right? <laughs> because yeah. if you yeah, want to yeah. build a product, then you must decide where you spend your time on another, the customer. Yeah. So um, I think that can work in i mean i saw a lot of good teams like actually doing it and being successful with it but there are also some who fail with this approach right so it probably depends yeah yeah, yeah. i mean that's why startups are hard uh, that's <laughs> if it was easy uh yeah a lot more would be so, successful i was gonna say i, I think that there, there were a couple of really good points that i want to drill down a little bit more on when, when we talk about startups and not even necessarily startups, but when I see small companies mm -hmm. in manufacturing look to find their, their first jobs, almost never would I suggest that they go look at the Fortune 50, Fortune 5,000, 10,000, right? For, for all of the reasons that we just discussed. Um, most of the time they're going to find success in a place that has a single location and they can go kind of build those informal relationships as, as Hyder kind of mentioned, uh, because most of the time there's going to be a decision maker who can make the decision, right? Sometimes it's a, a VP of ops who can make a big, big budget decision. Sometimes it's an engineering manager who can say, yes, let's go try this for 50 bucks a month or for 500 bucks a month, I can put it on my credit card and I can try it. So, and this is what I tell almost every group that, that I work with, that you want to start small to, to bring in the cash flow, right? It's not the, the Coca-Colas or the Pepsis or, or the, the big energy companies, but it's people who are willing to pay you actual money because in my experience, most of the deal cycles for those larger companies are six to 24 months, right? Uh, for, for many big companies that you have to go and get a budgetary approval. And even if you've done the work right before budgetary approval goes into process, you're still six to 12 months in place. If you miss the first budget year, th then you're working to build the relationship and you're 24 months out, best case scenario. And then you have to get people uh, on there. And one of kind of the, the major things I see people not, especially startups and smaller companies, not understanding about big companies, the, the, the fortune, whatever, is that if you go to sell to corporate, like in theory, this innovation center. So let's say Karim has this great idea. He sells it to Hyder and his innovation center. They run a proof of concept. They're like, man, we crushed this. We hit it out of the park. It was a great success for proof of concept, but to, to run it into full scale, as Karim was saying, the innovation center or corporate basically has to go to sell it to every single one of the other facilities, right? So at the point that you have worked with corporate to, to produce this proof of concept, it's almost like just the very beginning of your sales cycle, because now you have to sell it to every single one of those other locations. You don't mm -hmm. get there and you're like, yes, I've reached the finish line. You almost spend two years selling to do the proof of concept to get to the very beginning of the start line of the marathon, which is now I've got to sell it to five or 50 or 500 of these facilities around the world. And mm. that, that, that is where kind of big business and politics comes into play that I see almost no one in the, the, the at least manufacturing ecosystem, unless you work specifically in that style of work, kind of generally understand that uh th 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 that's the way to go uh um, and that, that is generally what happens yeah. there's maybe one exception to this sort of like mm -hmm. what we were talking about because i think we assumed sort of like young founders or maybe first-time founders right i have seen actually like pretty experienced founders they were able to pull it off in very short amount of time and signing big deals but this was basically also because they had like excellent networks and a lot of like you know, domain knowledge yeah. and they were on a product that really like could 
like solve a problem already like quite early right so that is maybe an exception to it um but these guys usually also then are you know in their 40s or 50s or so <laughs> then they there are a lot of examples actually out there like a lot of the big ai platforms in manufacturing these are all experienced founders these are not like people oh, who graduate and you know have a degree in ml or so mm-hmm. no no great and i would say that uh in big business in general it's more who you know than, than what you have right so i, I had a i have a group that i know that was trying to, to sell to a big organization and so when going to sell to this big organization they hired someone who goes to play golf with the, the ceo of that organization right um because in, in many instances it's it's who you know as opposed to as opposed to kind of having the the best product um technology to uh to technology so i I think that this is this is very interesting so Heider, you brought up a really good point and before we go kind of start wrapping up with the normal wrap-up questions i I want to kind of stress this point so we kind of were talking about the value proposition right we were talking about should i build should, should i do services to build what the company wants and make money so i might have time to build my product or do i try to build and sell my product when when you're talking with young companies, either as you know, the hat of innovation center or as the hat of talking to uh, to young startups, how do you go and talk to them about what a value proposition should be and what's actually valuable for these organizations? I'm I'm a pretty simple guy actually. I'm just like asking, okay, can you like solve my problem or can you solve any problem yeah. that we have, right? And can you can you prove okay. that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so what I what I actually, I mean, what I actually see is a lot of people like completely geek out on the technology and sort of like mm-hmm. go too fast into like too deep of a technology, and they have um, like just a superficial understanding of the problems that they want to solve, or mm-hmm. it's too generic. That's maybe another problem, right? So they can solve a problem, but then this is so generic or so like you know obvious that you can you have a lot of other alternatives as a buyer, right? That's maybe the other challenge. So basically, yep. hey, we have a problem. Can you help us? And then we must see. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I like it. I think I, I also agree as long as you keep it simple, most people on the manufacturing side, and this is going to be really harsh to the technology founders, like they don't care about your technology, right? Like you, you right. could have invented the most beautiful technology in the world if it doesn't solve their problem very specifically that they probably don't care about it. Uh, Karim, you've had a bunch of these conversations yeah. on the startup side. Would you agree that it's mostly solve my problem and we'll find work together as opposed to tell me about your technology? Yes. Uh, so yeah, I think a few things in manufacturing that I, I think are being like kind of misinterpreted. Like sometimes people say like, oh, you know, manufacturing people don't like to change ways. They don't want to like do some stuff. I don't think that's true. I think what you guys said is actually very correct. Is just they're not interested by shiny things because they're not like they're not this overbloated like Google-like companies where people have all the free time in the world to just like mess around mm-hmm. with stuff and like with no real responsibility. I think manufacturing companies are run much tighter, and that's why people, especially the closer you get to the plant, are very pragmatic and practical. Um, I think that they're not unreasonable either. They don't, they don't expect you to come with a full blown solution explaining everything and like, you know, ROIs and financial models. But I think they expect at least for you to have a hypothesis that makes sense. You've done your homework. You have a hypothesis. You say, Hey, I learned about this problem or I talked to this problem. Here's what we think. Here's how we think we could help you. And like some clear time and effort constraint plan to like, to try something to, 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 to experiment with it. I think what I learned, at least from my time in manufacturing, is that if you start a conversation, people will engage. In, in a, and you start it in a reasonable way, as you say, like problem-focused, solution-focused, not um, just innovation for the sake of innovation. And then so, and that's something that working with Vlad, Vlad always like, taught me, like even when we, you know, when we write new proposals or something, no matter how simple it is, is just start with a proposal, put it out there, give, talk about something reasonable and open the conversation. And in a lot of the cases, people will be receptive and you will get somewhere or you'll learn something that you can incorporate back into your product. 
Fantastic. I love that. I think that that's super, uh, that's all very good advice. Uh, a couple of wrap up questions uh, for you, Hyder. Uh, questions that we ask everyone. Um, I like to ask people to go ahead and predict the future, right? So what do you think that the future of innovation is going to, to look like in manufacturing? Are we going to have more innovation centers? Are we going to have a whole bunch of different people coming with with a variety of different 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 like startup solutions is that going to get slimmed down what, what is what is the future of innovation and manufacturing going to look like i'm not really sure whether we are able to predict the future but um, i think what is sure there are a lot of like technologies out there that are sort of exponential in nature and that are also converging right so we have ai as an exponential technology we have robotics we have uh like big data, 5G, all these kind of topics, right? And I think a lot of people look at these in isolation and mm -hmm. miss that these technologies basically interact very strongly with each other and will bring a lot of opportunities in the future that is probably really hard to 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 foresee. Um, so that's that's a tough question. Hi. <laughs> I asked the question because we always like to get different people's perspectives on it. I, I don't think I – no one is, is placing money on a bet that your technology prediction or anyone's future predictions are, are going to be correct. But I, I think that, that that is very good. Uh, the next question I, I like we like to ask people is about books, right? So I, I joke typically when Vlad is here that Vlad's going to go download the book on Audible, but Vlad, Vlad is currently catching up on the last – hundred uh, audible books that that he has downloaded and if, if people can't see i think you are by far the most prepared person for the question of can you give us a book recommendation or two because you've got two bookshelves currently behind your head so so Heider, can, can you give us a, bu a book recommendation or, or two please sure i mean it depends a bit what you look at i mean um what what would you be interested in i mean we can talk about innovation i think um the startup way by eric reese is probably your go-to resource um i mean eric reese i think should be like there's a caveat because a lot of people like know the lean startup and they think they mm -hmm. know mvps and they think they know like build measure learn and so on But, you know, like reading a book and then executing on it and or executing on the concept, these are like <laughs> like galaxies away, right? So um, yes. don't believe that just if you read something that you you know it all, right? But that would be one Absolutely. thing on innovation. I mean, on, on these like more futuristic perspectives, I like to have a look at Peter Diamandis. I mean, he's a bit controversial, but I think he has a lot of good ideas. So I would recommend like looking into um, the future is faster than you think, where he basically talks about this converging technologies. Then, yeah, there's a lot about product out there, a lot about leadership because leadership is also part of your innovation, right? People think it's, oh, it's just a program or it's just like a budget or so, but you also have to really execute it. You have to build teams. So there's a lot of like stuff out there that, that, that plays into the, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think both are very good recommendations. I have appreciated everything of Eric Reese that, uh, that, that I've read in the past, but, but to your point, doing the thing and reading the thing are, are worlds apart, right? And until you've done, until you've, you've followed the process and can, uh, can actually turn that into a skill, uh, very large, uh, differences. Uh, so, so we like to ask uh, for some career advice, either if someone is either getting into innovation or perhaps innovation, uh, within manufacturing, do you have some advice of, Hey, go, go down the path I have and, and get your PhD and go work up or, or, or do something different. Do you have some advice for people? Oh, that's a big question as well. So, um, I think there's, I mean, every career path is probably sort of unique, right? Um, Nowadays, I would probably advise a bit against the PhD, to be honest. I mean, it depends a bit. Um, I think a lot of opportunity out there is not in specialization, but it's more in generalization. And the PhD sometimes can be a hurdle because people get too narrow-minded on, on one topic. And then they miss like these bigger pictures. Yeah. So I would probably, but I mean, there, there are many ways I can't predict that, right? But I would probably say that... Um, that try to, to, to get experience in a couple of fields that are adjacent, but that are not like fully intersecting. So, um, 
yeah, look maybe a bit into the startup world, look a bit into the corporate world. Like, you know, don't, don't stick maybe too long also in one, one area. Try to like, you know, also get into sales and marketing, which I think is like absolutely crucial to understand also product, right? Product is like for me, the biggest game changer ever, like in, in my way of how I perceive like, um, innovation. So, but the, many paths can, can lead you to success, right? I, I, I absolutely agree. I think, uh, many paths can, uh, can lead people to success. And I think the world will appreciate more and more generalization and people with, with many skills, uh, and lots of the good ideas, uh, will come from that group. And, and last question uh, for you, Hyder is, is who should reach out? You know, who do you, who do you want to connect with? Who do you want to have conversations with? This is kind of your platform to, for us to say, thank you for, for coming and talking to us, uh, what can we, what can the community do to help you? Well, actually, I came to help you guys because you were reaching out and uh, <laughs> I said, all right, uh, let's, let's help you uh, with the, um, with the conversation. I am pretty open to, to like, you know, a chat, just like ping me on LinkedIn or so. Um, we can have a chat on anything. Absolutely. F fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Ryder. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining in and listening. Um, if you guys are listening on podcast, video, any other form, please hit the thumbs up. Please like us. Please follow us. Uh, subscribe on all your podcast platforms, Souls PLC and LinkedIn. If you're listening on podcasts, please rate us five stars because it helps for a bunch of reasons. Ryder, I like to joke. We could tell people why it helps the algorithm, but this is not that podcast. Uh, until next Wednesday, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.